Well, good morning, everybody. Today, we're going to get back into the Gospel of John. I know Adam's been waiting for this for a few weeks. We're going to pick up in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, a very famous story about the woman caught in adultery. And uh, before we dive into the text, if you open your your Bibles up to the passage, and I realize that uh, those who are listening may be looking at different Bibles here, which is all the better. In John chapter 8, in many of your Bibles, you will see a footnote that's associated with this passage. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. In uh, one Bible that I have at home, I I use many Bibles, uh, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, uh, none of the above, you name it, old ones, new ones. I use different Bibles, and most all of them have some footnote here about this passage. I used to read from the NIV predominantly, and in that Bible it says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 53 to 8.11. So it says, basically, this story doesn't exist in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. So I'm thinking, whoa, is this in the Bible or isn't it? <clears throat> I'm left with that question. So you may have a Bible that says that in it or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, the Bible that is in my lap today, there's a footnote that says, um, while uh, some of the modern compilers didn't consider part of the original, this material, quote, is presented in over 900 manuscripts. So this is, this is the pushback from the other side. So the, there's a little battle of the footnotes between the different Bibles. And one group is saying, well, the earliest and best manuscripts don't have it. And the other group is saying, well, yeah, but there's 900 that do. So the scholars are obviously wrestling over this passage right here. Uh, it is considered part of the majority text. Uh, which is compiled from the largest number of manuscripts that are used by the Western Church. Jerome used it in the Vulgate. But, uh, so, but there's been a lot of, dis- of all the passages in the Bible, the, the vast majority of the New Testament, there is no dispute about what the text is. Everybody agrees maybe there's a spelling variation or a tense variation, but there are two or three passages where there is some some difference and some argument among scholars, and this is probably number one on the list of, of, of texts that people argue about. So I was trying to dig through and look and say, well, did any of the early Christians talk about this? Tatian wrote a work called the Diatessaron, which is around 170, which is earlier than a lot of these manuscripts, where he took as a, it's a, he did a kind of a, a harmonization or a compiling of all four Gospels, he put it into one. And a lot of these things that the modern scholars say oh, that wasn't around, he actually has it in there, and he's earlier than the earliest manuscripts. But this one he doesn't, so that doesn't really help me right there. Uh, at the, um, there's a, um, uh, a quote from Eusebius in Ecclesiastical History. Eusebius is famous early church historian. And Eusebius writes that... Um, in Book 3, Chapter 39 of Ecclesiastical History, so he's writing sometime around 320, 325, and he says, Papias, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, who lived much earlier than he did, so he's, uh, uh, Papias was living, you know, 60 to 120 AD, approximately, 6130, 
And he says that Papias, uh, this is quoting Eusebius, he gives another history of a woman who'd been accused of many sins before the Lord, which is contained in the Gospel according to the Hebrews. Now, Gospel according to the Hebrews, I'm assuming he means Matthew, because right before that he said Matthew was the Gospel that was written for the Hebrews in the Hebrew language. So, uh, a lot of people think that this is what he's talking about. So Papias is earlier than anybody. He's, he's, a, he's a disciple of the Apostle John. Another thing that was really strange to me, I was looking at Catholic Bible in the footnotes, and it says this, in some manuscripts it doesn't appear, but in other manuscripts it appears in other places. So it pops up. It said sometimes it shows up at the end of the Gospel of John. Sometimes it shows up after John 7, 36, and then there's another place. It shows up after Luke 21, 38, so it shows up in a completely different gospel. So it shows up, but it seems to be showing up in different places or, or, or not at all. So, uh, but it seems like it was known early on in the church, and um, uh, it may have been somebody like Papias who knew the Apostle John personally that, uh, that insert, who, who knew what they were talking about inserted. But it's not, not in a lot of early manuscripts, but it's certainly been historically accepted by the church as being legit. So I don't question that it's legitimate. If anybody wants to dig deeper in this, I'm throwing some additional information in the notes uh, to explore this if you have any questions. But I think it's... it's uh, it's inspired just like the rest of the scriptures are, and the church has historically taken it that way, despite what some of the modern scholars are, are questioning. Uh, and at the end of this lesson, I'm going to give a, a quote from uh, a Christian work that's in the 200s that talks about this and about terms of, of the application of this and why this story is important for us. So let's, let's start off by reading the passage. We'll, we'll back up in John chapter 7, verse 53. So we'll take the whole, the whole disputed piece here. We'll take it all at once. And everyone went to his own house. And then chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
So let's let's process the story, the facts of the story, and then we're going to wrestle with some questions that I have with this. First of all, it takes place early in the morning in the temple area where Jesus is teaching, and the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. They bring her before Jesus. This is obviously a setup. And they point out to them, they say, look, Moses taught that we're to stone such a person, but what do you say? So they're trying to set him up as going against the law of Moses. Instead of replying, Jesus bends down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. Something. We don't know what it is. They keep asking him the question, and then finally he stands up and he says, he who's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. He goes back to writing on the ground. Starting with the oldest, they all, they all leave. And Jesus and the woman are left alone. So none of the men who wanted to condemn the woman are left. And then he tells the woman two things. One of which is very popular today. One of which is not very popular today. He says, I don't condemn you either. Where are, your, where are the people condemn you? He says, I don't condemn you either. So does that sound familiar? But then he also says, go and sin no more. So he calls the woman to repent and to stop sinning like she was, which is very unpopular today. But Jesus says both things. Uh, well, let's back up and look at, so this is, a, this is a spiritual war or chess game going on between Jesus and the Pharisees who are trying to trap Jesus, they're trying to checkmate him using the law of Moses, and he gets out of it. So let's understand the, the, what they were thinking, what they had in mind. First of all, as I think all of us know, adultery was a serious sin under the law of Moses. It's one of the Ten Commandments. The way I count it and the way most people do will be the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That's in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's right on the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. So this is one of the Ten Commandments. The penalties for certain sins in the scripture were very serious. Let's take a look at a few passages. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever the children of Israel, or the resident aliens dwelling in Israel, gives any of his children to worship a ruler, let him be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. So, a penalty for worshiping someone other than Jehovah, some, some, uh, uh, some worldly ruler, is death by stoning. Now, we may think stoning has no longer practiced in the world, but that's not true. There are places in the world, maybe a dozen countries or so, where stoning is still practiced. And the worst of those, sorry to say for some of the people who may be on this call, the worst country for stoning right now is Iran, which stones by far the largest number of people. So this is generally practiced in fundamentalist Muslim countries uh, the most stonings are in Iran today. 
Uh, stoning is an especially brutal way to die. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen a stoning or seen a, a YouTube of, of someone being stoned, but people are stoned in Iran, they're stoned in Pakistan, in Somalia. And the way, I never really thought about how do you stone somebody, because, you know, if somebody starts throwing stones, you run away. What's the big deal? Uh, you know, you get hit with a couple of stones and you run. The way that people are stoned today, which may go right back to ancient times, they'll dig a hole in the ground and they'll put the purse in the hole and they'll bury them up to their chest or so, so that they can't move. When I was a young boy at going to the shore, we used to play a game at the beach when we were bored. We dig a big hole in the ground and then put one of my younger brothers and sisters and bury them up to their neck. And, you know, this, this is... You don't ever do this. This is a very dangerous thing to do because you're immobilized when you do that. Okay, we, we did that. You'd never do that today, hopefully, but, but, but you, the person's immobilized. You can't get out. So what they do is they bury the person so the arms are immobilized, and then they get around and they throw stones at them until they're killed. Now, thinking of throwing rocks or stones at somebody, that's not a fast way to kill somebody. And it's also not completely obvious when they're dead. So this is death by a slow, painful, horrific way to die. So the person's going to die by concussion. They could die by bleeding to death. But it's, it's, it, generally it's a loss. So the people will stone them for 15 or 20 minutes. They'll see if the person's still alive and they'll hit him with another round of stones. They'll keep doing this until the person is pronounced dead. Now, one of the things is, during a stoning, no one person is responsible for the execution. They're executed by, so who, you know, if there's a beheading, that's one person who did it. Stoning, it's no one person who's responsible. And although beheading may seem to us like the most barbaric and horrific way to die, I'll take beheading over stoning any day of the week. Uh, it's probably a much less painful way to get executed. <clears throat> in, in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, this bears on the story here as well. This is pretty gruesome, but this is the backdrop if we want to understand what the, the people are talking about with Jesus. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, so this is the same chapter a little further down after the discussion on stoning. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife or who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So God here is equal opportunity. He's not, he's not uh, uh, the men and women are being treated the same. In this regard is that if, if uh, two people are involved in adultery, both of them, the man and the woman, get stoned. Or get get it says they get killed here, but in the context, I would assume he's talking about stoning. They're both to be killed. Then uh, Deuteronomy chapter seventeen. Let's let's turn there. This is important to understand as well. Get appreciation for what's going on in uh, in in John chapter eight. Deuteronomy chapter seventeen. Verses 6 and 7, so this is a requirement for anyone who gets the death penalty, which would certainly apply to stoning uh, of adulterers. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, Whoever is deserving to death shall be put to death 
on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not to be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall put away their evil from among you. So, uh, God is puts in a safeguard or a check against uh, someone being lynched unfairly by saying you need to have two or more witnesses. Now, how many people in the Old Testament were stoned to death because of adultery? There are lots of cases of adultery in the Old Testament. How many people were stoned for adultery? I can't think of any. And maybe one of the reasons is because he says you need to have two or three witnesses. Now think about that. Two or three eyewitnesses to the case of adultery. Now they didn't have video cameras, hidden video cams back in those days, so you had to have two or three people on the scene seeing someone committing adultery. How likely is that to happen? Not very. I mean, I can see one person stumbling in, but, but two or three people observing this is pretty unlikely. The other thing I notice in this passage here, notice who cast the first stone. It says the eyewitness cast the first stone and then everyone else follows. So the eyewitness bears a special burden of responsibility in this. And then it says, put the evil person away from among you. Uh, that you know, uh, establishing by the testimony of two or three witnesses, this is used as a principle for this accusation against an elder in the church. In the New Testament, this principle, and then put the evil person away from you, that carries over into the New Testament. If that sounds familiar, it should. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. The Christians are called to expel the immoral person from the church, to put them out of the church. And it says, because after all, it says, expel the wicked man from among you. So that's where it's found, one of the places where it's found. So, so that's, that's some background for the story, for what's going on here. Now, I have a few questions, as I'm, I'm always, I'm full of lots of questions. I read a book uh, many years ago, it had a big impact on me, and it has a silly title uh, to some. It's, it's called How to Read a Book. You know, Al says a picture of me. It's sitting there reading a book called How to Read a Book. So it's uh, uh, How to Read a Book, and it's by Adler and Van Doren, and it's, it's a guide to becoming a better reader. And I want to be a really good reader. I think anybody who wants to teach, the first thing you need to do is be a good reader. And one of the things that uh, the authors challenge the readers to become active readers. And it says an active reader, a passive reader just reads what it says, and that's an active reader, is somebody who reads the, que- the text and then asks questions of what they're reading. Unfortunately, the author is many times dead or unavailable, so the author can't speak back and give the answer. So you ask the question of the text, And then, unfortunately, you have to be the one to go dig into the text and find the answers to the question you just asked. And that causes you to grow in your ability to read and understand, be an active reader. So uh, that's something I really strive to be an active reader. It can be hard work, but you're rewarded by getting a deeper understanding of the Scripture. So 
There's some questions that I have. Maybe, maybe you have the same questions, maybe not. Some questions I have when I listen to this story. First question I have, why did the scribes and Pharisees think that this would be a trap for Jesus? If they asked Jesus, well, Law of Moses says you stone the woman. What do you say? And Jesus would say, we just read what the Law of Moses says. Jesus would say, you're right. If you have two or three witnesses, the first witness, you know, we can stone the person. That would be what I would expect Jesus to say. So that doesn't sound to me like it's a trick question or a trap. Now, most people today, when they're looking at this, will think, well, Jesus was really merciful. And the Pharisees and the scribes were unmerciful. So they're trying to put a, put a, uh, a contradiction between the merciful desires of Jesus to forgive people and the commandments of the law of Moses to, to create a tension between the two, and they're trying to expose Jesus as being soft on Moses. And I think that's how most people look at this passage. But I have, if that's the case, I have some follow-up questions. Let's think about that. Why would the Pharisees and, and the scribes think that Jesus was soft on the law of Moses, or he was more merciful than, than, than Moses was. When I look at the teachings of Jesus, it seems to me he was more hard-line than Moses was. Think about it. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. So was Jesus the softy here? And Moses, Moses the tough guy, and was Jesus the, you know, the, the easy guy here? Uh, it doesn't seem like it to me. So I'm just, I'm wrestling with this. Matthew chapter 5. Let's compare Jesus and Moses and see who was tougher. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 20. I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the fifth commandment. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say... No, I'm sorry, that's the sixth commandment. Whoever, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka will be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool will be in danger of hell fire. Uh, let's, let's skip down in verse 27. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Then verse 31. Now Moses had said you can get to, a man could divorce his wife and give her a certificate of divorce. Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 31. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So, is Jesus toning down the commandments of Moses? Is he teaching a softer version of the message than Moses is? I don't think so. He's talking about oaths. He's talking about... Uh, 
In, in Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about oaths. He's talking about later on, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. No, you have to love your enemies. Uh, he's talking here about divorce, about lust. He's, he's taking the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses and calling people to an even higher standard. And it says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So I'm left with a question, why... With Jesus being a preacher like this, why would the scribes and Pharisees think that he was going to soft-pedal what Moses taught? I don't get it. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41. Jesus is talking about himself by comparing himself to Jonah. And in verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, in some ways, could be considered the greatest preacher of repentance in the Old Testament. Single-handedly, he brought down the entire city of Nineveh in sackcloth and ashes from the king all the way down. And Jesus says that he is an even greater preacher of repentance than Jonah is. So Jesus is a pretty hard-line teacher. Read what it says in Mark chapter 9 about what will happen to you if you cause one of the little ones to stumble. Or in, in Luke 13, the people were concerned about the, the people who had died in their in their. Uh, their blood was uh, mixed with the sacrifice. Let's read that in Luke 13. I just want us to appreciate that Jesus was more strict in, in, in many ways than, than the scribes and Pharisees were. Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. There were present at that season some who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffer such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are the eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they are worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus, I believe Jesus in all the Bible is the greatest preacher of repentance, greater than anybody in the Old Testament. He calls people to a higher standard, and he also threatens them with a greater punishment than anyone in the Old Testament did. He's the greatest of all the prophets in, in that regard. Of course, he's more than that, too. So here's my question. If Jesus had a reputation of being the world's greatest teacher of repentance, why? would the Pharisees and the Sadducees think that he was going to soft-pedal what Moses commanded? Is there anything that suggests that? Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense to me, so I'm still left wrestling with this passage. And I want to throw out, for your consideration, another possibility of what was going on here. The Jewish leaders were constantly trying to get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities so the Roman authorities could take him out, lock him up, or kill him. They wanted the Roman government to do their dirty work for them. Let's consider this. Let's look at Matthew chapter 22. This is, I think this is a similar example in my opinion. Hang, hang with me on this one. I'll just let me, let me make the case. 
And then make your own make your own opinion. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Read verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent him their disciples with a Herodian, saying, Teacher, we know you're true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you don't regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, perceiving their wickedness, perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in trouble with the Romans. You know, what's, what, if, he, if he says, don't pay your taxes, what are they going to do? They're going to go to the Romans. They're going to say, Jesus is leading a tax revolt right here. So you better do something about it. You better take the guy out. Uh, now, notice that when Jesus is challenged here with the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He doesn't say yes or no. He answers whose image is on this? Render to Caesar what is Caesar and what a God what is God's. And of course, we're made in the image and likeness of God. So there's a deeper teaching which goes back to Genesis that's rooted in there as well. Matthew chapter 12 says that Jesus was a greater preacher of repentance than Jonah. And he's also wiser than Solomon. And so Jesus, when he is, people are trying, creating these traps for him, he is disarming them like Solomon did with the, with the, the two women and the baby, and he, he's outsmarting them and cutting right through it to reveal the truth. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus, the Jews tried to set up trap for Jesus in the end, when you think of why Jesus was crucified. Let's look at Luke chapter 23. When Jesus brought before Pilate, what's the accusation to the, uh, that the Romans would relate to? Luke 23, starting at verse 1, The whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this person, fellow, perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. So that's what they're doing. Now, Jesus, obviously that's a lie, but they're trying to get the Romans to take Jesus out. They're saying he claims to be a king, so this is sedition against Caesar, and he's forbidding people to pay taxes to Rome. So the similar sentiments are expressed in, in John chapter 19 and verse 12. <clears throat> Let's turn to John chapter 18. Pilate doesn't want to deal with this. He sees this as a Jewish religious issue that he doesn't want to have anything to do with. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. It was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. So Pilate, it's like this is a Jewish religious discussion. 
Get out of here. I don't want to deal with you people. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So Jesus, of course, said he would be lifted up like the snake in the desert, that he'd be lifted up, he'd be crucified. So it's interesting The Jews wanted the Romans to deal with him because they said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So let's think about this. If the Jews did not have the right in their own legal system to use capital punishment, when they're asking Jesus the question, Moses said we should stone such a person. What do you say? I think what they're trying to do is just like in the tax question, they're trying to trap him into breaking the laws of Rome. The Jews were not allowed to execute people, obviously, or they would have executed Christ on their own. So you may think otherwise, but that that to me, that that makes a lot of sense. So I think about this. This is a trap. They're trying to pit... Jesus against following the law of Moses or, 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 and breaking the laws of Rome or following the laws of Rome and breaking the law of Moses. It's like they think they had got him caught between a rock and a hard place. So that's the first question I have is why would this be a trap for Jesus? That's my opinion. Second question, and here my answer is, is no better than anybody else's, but I'm going to throw it out anyway just because I ask questions like this. What was Jesus writing on the ground with his finger? I want to know. I want to look over his shoulder. What was he writing on the ground? Okay, I, somehow I don't think he was doodling on the ground. I don't, think, I don't think he was just scribbling on the ground marking time. What was he writing on the ground? And how does it tie in with the story? And of course we don't know, so my, my guess is as good as anybody else's, but When I think about what did Jesus do when the Pharisees and Sadducees and anybody attacked him, usually he came back with the scriptures. He came back, well, it is written this. He said, well, you know, if you really believed in Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. Uh, You know, he says, well, whose image is this? Well, you would render render to God what is God's. We're made in the image of God. So he's using logic and he's using the scriptures, particularly here the issue is on the law of Moses. So... If I'm going to take a guess on this, which I, I'm going to, uh, I'm thinking he probably wrote something from the Law of Moses that ties into this situation as a backdrop and to drive the point home, which may have helped uh, get the people cleared out of there. I'm thinking, what would I do if I was in a situation? If I was a Jew and I was being accused of breaking the Law of Moses? You know, I'll, give you one, I'll give you some things that I might consider writing. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is, this is speculation, but I think, what was he writing on the ground? If I was a writing on the ground, here's, here's, here's one of the things I would think of writing. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Think about this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, neither his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, his cattle, or anything else belonging to your neighbor. Say, whoa, that's pretty pretty hard. 
you start to think about these things that, uh, I mean, I can't say that that's what Jesus wrote, but if he did write that, it would make sense to me going back to the, let's, let's go back to what Moses actually said there. And that's what Moses said. Now, it's easy to look down on somebody who's involved in adultery and saying, well, I've never committed adultery. Let's stone that person. But he's, there are some other challenges there. Not stealing, not lying, not bearing false witness. Or the Tenth Commandment is honestly a really tough one. I don't think anybody follows the Tenth Commandment. Tenth Commandment is an overlooked one, which says you can't even covet. Let's think about that. You can't covet somebody else's husband or wife, boyfriend, house, car, job, bank account, looks, possessions. I mean, how many people can say with a clear conscience, oh, I've never committed that sin? So, you know, when he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, I mean, that's, I, I, would have, I would have thought, this would be a good thing to write down. While we're on the subject of adultery, let's just keep right on going. So that's just my imagination. Um, it also makes me think about, it says he's writing with his finger. Okay? The only other place I can think where it says of someone writing something with their finger is... When it says the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God in Exodus 31 and in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. So I'll throw that out as a possibility. I can't prove it, but it's just a thought. He also could have written out Leviticus 20.10, which says both the man and the woman are to be stoned. Raises the obvious question. If you saw them in the act, where's the man? Okay. Where's the guy? That might be something I'd write on the ground. Yeah. Or he could have written Deuteronomy 17, 6-7, which we read before, where it says you need two or three eyewitnesses and the eyewitness cast the first stone. So Jesus certainly could have come back at them and writing on the ground with the law of Moses. Or he could have been just doodling, I don't know. But I'm just, I'm just wrestling with the text thinking, what would I do in this situation? Now, lessons from this story here. Uh, most people today love to camp out on the first half of John chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, starting in, in uh, verse 10, Jesus asked the woman, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? In verse 11, she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Okay. There's a very famous recent quote from the Bishop of Rome in the Catholic Church. I was raised a Catholic. I'm not, I'm not particularly out to bash the Catholic Church, but it was a question about homosexuality, and he said famously, well, who am I to judge? And this is an aspect of, of, of Jesus here. The I didn't come to judge people. Who am I to judge? I'm not judging you. Uh, this is raised up as the highest value in modern society. And of course, that statement by, by uh, Pope Francis was applauded by the, uh, the media because the greatest value in the modern world, after all, is tolerance and relativism. There's no truth. Uh, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me, good for me. Your truth, my truth. Uh, 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 and any, any rules in the Bible regarding sexual limitations are out the window. 
And uh, so, so that's the attitude that most people take. They love the first half of this passage. Jesus says to the woman called in adultery, I don't condemn you. And so people say, we're going to be just like Jesus. We're not going to condemn anybody. Unfortunately, for people who want to do that, they have to finish, at least finish the verse. You don't even have to go into the next verse. Just finish the verse. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus calls the adulteress to repent of her adultery, to stop doing it and never do that sin again. So Jesus absolutely preached. He, was, he, he, he let her go, but he called her to repent. It's similar, we were, several weeks ago, the passage we read in John chapter 5 and verse 14, when the man who was crippled came back to Jesus, who'd been healed by Jesus, says, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So Jesus used the opportunities that he had, uh, opportunity of healing, opportunity of forgiving, to continue to preach repentance and to call people to repent of their wickedness and turn to righteousness. And I think that's really the challenge throughout history, is to take both aspects of Jesus. On the one hand, he is willing to extend mercy to the worst sinner. On the other hand, he is absolutely calling people to repent. And he calls everybody everywhere to repent. I think that's the challenge. In our day, the danger is overwhelmingly around us on the side of people who don't want to judge anything at all and who want to say, who am I to judge? And everything is okay. Uh, and rather than calling people to repent. But I think that's... That's If we want to see Jesus and embrace this, we have to do both. I'm going to close with a story. In the course of, of digging with this, uh, David Berceau put a curse on me many years ago uh, that I've, I've shared with people, and, and it was, uh, you know, go, Chuck, wander in the wilderness and never teach on anything unless you've gone back to the primary sources. So uh, I had to go back and, and dig through the the, the uh, Didascalia Apostolorum, or Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, written around the year 230, which is the earliest quote from this passage that I could find in the early Christian writers. And this is a very practical work, and in the course of, of doing the primary source research, I often stumble onto a lot of things I never ever would have learned otherwise. Uh, so it's a very practical work. It's not telling you some new theological thing, but how do you put things into practice? How do, you, how do you, in the church, practically implement the teaching of Jesus? And a lot of the work is oriented towards the bishops or overseers of the church. Now, coming from a Catholic background, when I hear bishop, I think of someone who wears black with a purple skull cap on, and there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that. So just, just doing a literal translation of overseer is easier for me to see, to see clearly. So they're talking to the overseers or bishops of the church, and they're saying, look, here's what you need to do when you're leading the church. This is in the early years. Here's how you put these things into practice. And it said... <clears throat> The biggest, the big focus was in Ezekiel 33 and Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 33 starts off, it says, he talks about the watchman. 
It says, when the watchman sees the enemy coming and blows the horn, if the people don't listen, it says, it says if, you, if you blow the horn and sound the warning, I'm not going to blame you. The blood's going to be on their own head. But if you see the enemy coming and you don't blow the horn, I'm going to hold you responsible for the people who die. And he says, that's, and, and they say, this is intended for those who are leading the church. Is that when you see sin, when you see false teaching, you need to sound the trumpet to warn the people in the flock if they're straying away from sin. So they're saying, the elder is called to be a watchman for the flock from Ezekiel 33. It says, elders need to be counting the flock. Now I was in a church that took a lot of statistics, statistical records of people, so I had a problem with that. I had to, get, had to work my way through that, some flashbacks, painfully. But uh, they said, you need to count the flock, meaning that at the end of the day, all the sheep come back in the pen. What's the shepherd do? He counts the sheep to see if there are any missing sheep, because if there are, you go out and find them. He said, this is like Jesus. You have to count the flock looking for those who may have strayed. He says, you also have to have the heart of a good shepherd and goes through all the wonderful qualities in Ezekiel 34 about the good shepherds who bind up the wounded and who strengthen the, the strong and prepare them for service and who, who, really, who really feed them and help them and water them. It says that they need to be strong. The leaders of the church need to be strong and they need to rebuke people who are in sin and call them to repent. However, it says at the same time, they also need to be merciful because while we may not see that so much in our own age, this has been a problem at various times and places where church leaders have not been merciful and welcome people back when they, they, they were forgiven. It goes back to Ezekiel 33, and it says, God doesn't want anybody to pay parish, but when, when a person later on in life repents, he's happy to embrace them and welcome back. Then it points to the story of Manasseh in, in, in Kings and Chronicles, who was a wicked, horribly wicked sin sinner, who repented and turned back at the end of their life. And so, the bishops are saying, remember those stories from the Old Testament. The people can repent and be used by God. And it closes with a story from John chapter 7 and 8, the passage that we have just been studying. And I want you to hear what they said to the bishops after all this teaching about be stern, be firm, call people to repent. He says, "Where?" this is from chapter 7 of the Diskalia. Wherefore, O bishops, so far as you can, keep those that have not sinned, that they may continue without sinning, and those that repent of their sins, heal and receive. But if you do not receive the one who repents because you are without mercy, you shall sin against the Lord God. For you do not obey our Savior and God to do as he did, and as he also did with her that sinned, whom the elders set before him, and leaving the judgment in his hands departed. But he, the searcher of hearts, asked her and said to her, Have the elders condemned you, my daughter? And she said, No, Lord. And he said to her, Go your way, neither do I condemn you. In him, therefore, our Savior and King and God, be your pattern, O bishops, and imitate him that you may be quiet and meek, merciful and compassionate, peacemakers without anger, teachers and correctors and receivers and exhorters that you not be wrathful or tyrannical, and you not be insolent, haughty, or boastful. So 
But that's the kind of that's the kind of church leaders that God wants us to have. People who embrace the full aspect of who Jesus is, who can forgive those who repent and can call them to continue in righteousness, but are also not afraid to to call people to go and leave your life of sin. So I, I, I really pray that we can embrace both aspects of Jesus as we minister to the world and we shepherd one another. Amen.